preaching of God's Word that is in the book of Psalms, and particularly Psalm 102. Psalm 102, it's there found at verse 14. For the sake of context, you'll notice that verses 1 through 11 is the struggling through difficulty. So the psalm begins, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto Thee. And there is a continuation of that theme and an expressing of that theme and an acknowledging of the aggravations that have come unto the psalmist. There's a change that happens in verse 12, and so we'll begin our reading there and read for a few verses beyond. Psalm 102, beginning at verse 12. But Thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever, and Thy remembrance unto all generations. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion, for the time to favor her, yea, the set time is come. For Thy servants take pleasure in her stones, and favor the dust thereof. So the heathen shall fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth Thy glory. When the Lord shall build up Zion, He shall appear in His glory. He will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. This shall be written for the generation to come, and the people which shall be created shall praise the Lord. As far as the reading of God's Word, notice particularly verse 14, For thy servants take pleasure in her stones, and favor the dust thereof. Now, it is a strange expression to say that anyone favors Dust. It's a word that expresses delight and desire for. And who would there be among us that would look at a pile of dust and say, that's where my heart is set. That's what I love. And yet that's what's being expressed. Stones. Stones are here said to be that which grabs the pleasure of God's servants doesn't mention a, mention a building, it doesn't mention an edifice, it doesn't mention the temple, it mentions the stones. Not that which is constructed and well-ordered, but that which has become disintegrated and is separated. And yet, even in that disordered state, the people of God are said to love them. The people of God are said to treasure them. They're delighting in the things of God's kingdom. Now, we aren't told specifically the historical context that gave rise to this particular psalm, but you'll notice the title indicates that it's a prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and poureth out his complaint before the Lord. At the very least, it speaks of that season of any soul that is brought down, that is in a degraded situation, that is mourning and weeping. And you can see those expressions when, for instance, in verse 5, we read, by reason of the voice of my groaning, my bones cleave to my skin. Notice verse 8, mine enemies reproach me all the day, and they that are mad against me are sworn against me. And the psalmist becomes quite acquainted with his mortality and with his limitations and weakness. And he speaks of, verse 11, his days are like a shadow that declineth, and I am withered like grass. But there's an interesting transition when from himself and circumstances 
he turns to consider Jehovah. But thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever. There's instruction there for us that when we ourselves are pressed down, when we ourselves are, as the title indicates, overwhelmed and are filled with complaint, that we pour it out before the Lord even as we have warrant here to do, but that we also, with that, turn our attention to the Lord, to consider Him as to what He is and what He is for us. And it's there where there is an encouragement that is gained. And you'll notice that's where this beautiful expression is found as well in that turning at verse 13, Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion. Now this is a clue as well to the context. Though he has to this point expressed his individual grief, notice it doesn't say, Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon me, but it's corporately focused. It's looking to the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God. You will have mercy, not merely upon me, but upon your kingdom. Zion, Jerusalem, the capital and the very center of the tabernacle and later temple and so on. And likely the context is found to be in the season of captivity. We aren't certain of that, but there are clues along the way, especially in the second part, as there's such a desire to see the kingdom of God built up. And so notice what is going on. God, in verse 19, is said to have looked down from the height of His sanctuary from heaven. Did the Lord behold the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to loose those that are appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and His praise in Jerusalem? That's not taking place at this time. But there's a time coming, assured as it is, that shall come. Now, the text before us itself is a cause identified for the hope expressed of verse 13. Notice the hope. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion. Now, he's given, it seems, some degree of divine assurance for the time to favor her, yea, the set or the appointed time has come. But verse 14 gives one of the reasons he's assured of it. For, that links us back to this hope, for because thy servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. There is affliction, but the affliction is having its effect. It's a psalm that is steeped in the waters of trouble, and yet the steeping of such souls in the midst of these troubled waters bring forth the beauty of faith. That's what's being expressed. It's not just in Himself. Rather, it's not just for I, Thy servant, take pleasure in her stones, but Thy servants take pleasure. The psalmist is noting something. He Himself desires the advance of God's kingdom, but He's beginning to witness a turning in God's people to desire the same. And so, there's this identifying of this work of God. God's people are delighting in even the little things that belong to God. 
They're not just delighting in the gold and bronze and those beautiful things. I heard someone say just today about having visited some cathedral in Spain and saying to begin speaking of it would cause me to start weeping so beautiful it was. Now, we don't question the outward beauty of such buildings, but we acknowledge there is nothing spiritual at all about such attraction. A common pagan and atheist can look at those buildings and do look at those buildings and say, this is beautiful. When Notre Dame was on fire, it wasn't just the so-called Christian community that was concerned. You had atheists who were historians saying this is a tragedy. Why? Not because of any spiritual significance, but because of the historical significance of such a building. Well, brethren, this is nothing of that. The desire and delight that's being expressed in this verse has nothing to do with outward beauty, has nothing to do with what would attract the attention of natural men. It is rather an expression of the spiritual delight of God's people in the things that belong unto God. The very stones, the very dust, the smallest things that aren't even ordered as they should be ordered, these things are dear unto God's people. And in that the psalmist witnesses this taking place in others, there's hope. Why? Well, they're being brought to pray. We ought to remember this. Prayer is not just the expression of our desires. It is an appointed means of grace. There's a mystery to prayer because God is the one who has appointed the end and the means. But when we understand that theology rightly, when we begin to see people earnestly praying, we can begin to take hope. Why? Because God is at work in His people bringing them to pray, which is a great indication that He's preparing a work to perform. And this is what's taking place in the text. So, however much God's kingdom suffers in this world, whether it is a season of captivity, whether it is a season of great degradation, when His people treasure it and are moved with concerted prayer, there is cause to begin expecting great blessings from God. This is no uh, sort of charismatic nonsense. This is the established pattern of God's Word. You can think of this. Every great movement of God recorded in His Word is begun with prayer. So you, th- you read Nehemiah chapter 2. What was Nehemiah doing before that? He prayed. He was spending time in prayer. You can see it, for instance, as well in the book of Esther. What happens before she goes into the presence of the king? Not only is she praying, she has her family praying, and she has the Jews that are believing praying. There's earnest prayer being made. What happens before the day of Pentecost? The people are gathered and they're praying. Now, we can sit back and say, well, that's because God ordained the time of deliverance in uh, the book of Esther. That's because God ordained the time of deliverance in the book of Nehemiah, the building up of the walls. That's because God ordained the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. And you'd be absolutely right. But do not miss this connection. He ordained it and ordained that prior to it, God's people would be praying. Prayer is being cultivated as there is an increase of love 
to the things of God's kingdom. So consider briefly three things as we make our way through this. Firstly, Zion's ruins. Secondly, Zion's lovers. And thirdly, Zion's blessings. Zion's ruins, lovers, and blessings. As to the ruins, we speak of those ideas that are caught up in the idea of a a ruined building, a building a you can go to, of course, and, and see this in pictures where you uh, can visit through various applications online and survey the ruins of ancient Greek and Roman temples. You don't have to do that. You can go down into downtown and you can see the ruins of older churches where there's just the facade that now stands and grass is growing all around. This is what a ruin is. It's something that was once glorious, once built, once functioning, And now it only has a little remnant of what it once had. Now when we speak of Zion's ruins, we're speaking of the things that belong unto God's kingdom. To understand what the ruins are, consider what the glorious display of Zion is. In the Old Testament, it consisted much in the outward display of the ordinances. Not exclusively, but much in that. So for instance, in the Psalms, when we see David away from Jerusalem, what does he say? He says, I long to be back. I look toward that place. I remember how once I went with the people with the voice of joy and gladness and joined in the worship of God, but now I've been chased away. Now I'm distant from those very ordinances and his soul grieves because of it. We saw at the establishing of the temple uh, under Solomon's reign what happens, but there when things are done according to God's will, He owns it and He displays His glory in filling the temple such that none could continue there. Such was the wonder of it. Much, of course, was in the outward display of the ordinances. And so when the ark was taken from God's people, what was the word pronounced? It was Ichabod. The glory is departed. Here the emblem, the throne of God Himself is now departed from God's people. This outward sign and ordinance is removed and so there is the entertaining of the reality that now that glory has removed as well. Under the New Testament, it's less outward, but it still consists in the ordinances being administered faithfully according to God's Word and by the power of His Spirit. This is so basic, of course. When Christ sends forth His disciples in the Great Commission, He says, go therefore, and what does He say? Teaching them to observe whatsoever I have commanded you. Making disciples of all nations, yes, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. But catch that what he said, that they are to be teaching all things whatsoever he has commanded them. The New Testament does not drift, nor does it permit a drift, from the careful and strict adherence to the very Word of God. When people speak of liberty, we have no hesitation saying glorious liberty that belongs to the sons of God. But what often happens is there is an entertaining of what is a gross error. 
to think that the glorious liberty that belongs to us as the children of God permits us to say to God's word, it really doesn't matter how faithfully we execute what he's commanded. But we see an entirely different spirit, both in our Savior and in his servants, the apostles particularly. And so Christ is giving the commission, and you can see this in a number of ways, but one illustration is in the book of Corinthians, when Paul is correcting the abuses of the Lord's Supper, what does he say? He says, I delivered to you what I received of the Lord. And then he goes through quoting the Word of God regarding the institution of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, this great display of God's grace and salvation, is to be administered precisely in the way that Christ has instituted. So the New Testament doesn't say to us, listen, the Old Testament was very stringent about ordinances. You don't need to worry about that anymore. Though there are fewer, though there are certainly less uh, uh, things to observe, yet the things which are to be observed are still to be observed according to the mind of Christ. And what a blessing when they are. There are many blessings that people of our day don't understand. The blessing of the worshiper being able to sit and say, the things that are being done here, I can abandon my soul unto without any fear of profaning the Lord's worship. That's a tremendous blessing. When people think about the Psalms being constrictive, they are on a different boat in a different body of water. Because the Psalms have no error. The Psalms have no mark of any immaturity. They have nothing that is merely sentimental. They have nothing that we have to say, well, should we really be singing that? The soul can entirely throw its whole weight behind every word sung in the confidence that not only is it true and good and representative of what's true and good, but that it is divinely sanctioned for the purpose of worshiping God. That is tremendously beneficial to the worshiper. When the Lord's Supper is administered without corruption, without additional ceremonies, without uh, taking away from that, the soul can come and without distraction or without frustration can there commune with Christ without hindrance. Brethren, the closer the ordinances are administered to the standard of God's Word, the more joy, the more liberty, the more enjoyment of these things is provided for the soul of that one who worships God. But it's not just the glorious administration of the ordinances. It includes as well the powerful work of God's Spirit by them. And so you think of it, the way God manifested at Solomon's consecrating of the temple, His glory, was by the manifestation of the same. There was a display of the presence of God in and with the ordinance. And you can see something of this as well, not in the physical sense of uh, things, but rather in the display nonetheless of tangible evidence of the Lord's blessing His ordinances. Notice in the book of Acts, chapter 2, and there at verse 47, these are praising God and having uh, favor with all the people, 
and the Lord is adding to the church daily such as should be saved. Now you go back, we reference this passage on the Lord's Day, and you see what they're doing. They're diligently attending to the ordinances that Christ has given. But there's this blessing that comes in that the Lord is adding to the church daily such as should be saved. It's not the manipulating of uh, souls to think, well, this is helpful and we're going to find a way to manipulate your feelings and so on. This is a divine work. God is owning the ordinances. God is building up His church. God is adding daily such as should be saved. And it's amazing how these opening chapters chronicle, you'll notice just a few verses before in verse 41, about 3,000 souls on one day were converted and added to the church. It's almost impossible for us to comprehend that. 3,000 people, they're brought to faith. There are times in church history beyond the Scriptures where we can see great influences of the same. There are also times when we don't see that. There are times when we see perhaps not even so clearly a perceptible little drip of favor. But these are seasons where the Lord is doing wondrous things. And not just in getting another name added to a role, but rather with power converting and sanctifying and advancing His cause unto godliness. It's the very thing that Paul references in 1 Thessalonians 1, when he says there at verse 5 that the, the Word came, as he says, in the Holy Ghost. But before that, in power. The means was used of the preaching of the Gospel, but the Holy Spirit added His blessing to the ordinance and brought forth not just a profession of faith, but a sound conversion and the production of a truly godly people. Well, we could multiply instances, but when such things are taking place, there is something of the glorious display of Zion. But what of its ruin? You can see it in the Old Testament. Nehemiah expressed it toward the end of Nehemiah 2 when he says, listen, the wall is torn down, the gates are burnt up, There's no worship taking place. There's nothing that should be going on as it should. The enemies are living in the place where God's people are to live. God's people are cast out or are held as servants in the land of promise. That was a great burden. But chiefly consider this. The ordinances ceased. The testimony of the way of pardon was withdrawn. The priesthood was largely no longer functioning as it should or if it could. There was a great tearing down, not just of the outward display, but of the spiritual blessing. I think it was John Rogers of Dedham in the 16th century when he was preaching. And the Word of God had recently in history come into the native language and the people of God had had a season of great upbuilding and strengthening and holiness and yet things had begun to lessen. And one of his famous sermons, he's preaching about the priority of God's Word and he's urging God's people that they would renew their commitment to Him and embrace His Word, not just by expressing it on our lips, but by a holy and godly life. 
And he takes the Bible and he slams it closed. And he says, you who despise my word, I take it from you. And then Mr. Rogers falls to his knees as if he were pleading and saying, oh God, though we've denied your word, though we've not used your word as we ought, take not your word from us to give us a famine of the word. He had witnessed great blessings, but he had begun to see the receding of the waters such that God's people were no longer earnestly desiring those things. That's the ruining of Zion. It's when the ordinances are either corrupted or when it is they no longer are used of God to convey such power unto salvation and unto holiness. You can see different ways this is expressed in the New Testament. For instance, in 2 Timothy and chapter 4, very familiar to us, Paul says to Timothy, verse 2, preach the word, but he indicates in season and out of season. There's something for us, but notice verse 3, he says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. That's a season when Zion's cause lay in ruins. That there was a season when they were listening to God's Word and it all seems to have prospered and so on. But then they turn away and they seek false teachers to guide them contrary to God's Word. The ordinances are losing, as it were, their influence and likewise they are being corrupted by false teaching. We've already referenced 1 Corinthians 11. It's an interesting and very searching way that Paul puts it there at verse 20 when he says, when ye come together into one place, listen to this, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, what he's saying is, though you think you're coming, though you think you're observing the Lord's Supper, it's not the Lord's Supper. Why? Because of the gross corruptions that have entered in. In eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper. One's hungry, another's drunken. And he goes on to ridicule them and reprove them for their treating of a holy and, and sacramental meal as a common feast. He says, whatever else you're doing, whatever term you want to use for it, it is not the pure ordinance of the Lord's Supper. So then he sets it back in order. Likewise, in general, the influence of godliness when it declines is a sign that things are becoming uh, in disrepair. You can see something of this in Revelation 2 and verse 20 when Christ speaks and says, notwithstanding this to the church of Thyatira, I have few things against thee because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and so on. This false and wicked teacher is misleading God's people in a church, the church of Thyatira. And so what's happening? That which was built up as beautiful is being corrupted by the influence of sinful men and women. This is what Zion's ruins refer to. This is the implication for us today, that when we see indeed churches purified and reformed according to Scripture and its ordinances and godliness, not just its right doctrine, 
but it's right living. We see God building up the glory of Zion. That's what the Christian wants. The Christian wants a pure church. A church that's free from the additions of men in doctrine, in worship, in sacraments, in preaching, in discipline, in government. But he also wants a pure people, not just others to be pure, but himself to be pure. Oh, that we would be such is his great desire. And when it is that those things aren't seen, what happens? Well, there's a temptation. The temptation is to say, well, there's only grief for me. But notice the text. The text says, thy servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. This moves us secondly to Zion's lovers. What is it they love? They don't just love Zion when it's flourishing. They don't just love it when it's at the zenith of its influence. We love to hear stories of the early church overtaking the empire. We love to hear stories of the Reformation not only beginning, but flourishing for a season. We love to hear stories of great works of God throughout history. And we think to ourselves, what would it have been like to have been there, to have seen it? You've heard me say before, there John Livingston at the Kirk of Shots preaching And there on one day, after a communion, the Monday after, there roughly 500 people converted. What would it have been like? You can go there to the place today and see the very location where this took place. What would it have been like? And we think, oh, our days. Our days are so little. They're so insignificant. They aren't those days. But there's a temptation in that. It's to love only the great influence of Uh, Zion's prosperity and to say that's what I love but the Christian though longing for such things to return loves even the dust of it loves even the small crumbs that fall from the master's table these are privileges that are beyond what I deserve oh though I long to see other churches planted I long to see our church grow Yet what a privilege that we may sing the psalms, that we may worship without the corruption of instruments, that we may gather and hear God's Word read and preached and so on. These gladden our souls because we love the God of the kingdom. So we love even when He gives little, even when it's a little portion, we say it's God's that He's given to us. It's His kingdom that's present within us. It's His kingdom that is being established. Though it's small, as you're well familiar, we're not to despise the day of small things because think of what the things are that are small. They're the things of God's kingdom. They're His ordinances, His blessings, His government, His worship. There's nothing there to be despised. They love it. They don't love the corruptions. They don't even love the size of it. They long for it to grow. They pray for it to grow, even as is held forth in the rest of this psalm. But they still love even the smallness of God's kingdom because it's His. They're the things that God 
has established. Oh, it's not the preaching of Charles Spurgeon, but it's preaching. It's not the psalm singing that once echoed through buildings that held thousands, but it's still the psalms being sung. It's not the Lord's table that's being administered with ten seatings and ten table addresses and windows open with people peeping their heads in and other ministers ministering in the fields, but it's the Lord's Supper. And so we delight in it because it's His. How do they love it? Well, you can see in various places they love it sincerely. They love it for what it is itself. But they do love it with longing. They love it with longing for more. This is what makes us rightly, when it is rightly, to say, oh, what you've given, multiply, build up. You can picture this in Psalm 137. In that psalm, you'll notice it's by the rivers of Babylon. So beyond question, in this psalm, we're speaking of the time of captivity. There we sat down, yea, we wept. Why? When we remembered Zion. Oh, our love to Zion. It now constrains us to weep because we're removed from her. And here, notice what happens. Verse 3, They that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Now, you and I might struggle at first and say, well, why wouldn't they be happy to do that? Because it's just a theatrical performance for these people. They aren't interesting in sort of saying, here's a cultural artifact. Here's something that's just fun to do. That's not what they're interested in. Notice, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? How can we just carry on with life and say, well, this is sort of part of what we are. If I forget the O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. Is this true of you? Verse 6, If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth, if I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Is the cause of Christ above your chief joy in this world? They love Zion sincerely. There's nothing equal to And there's certainly nothing above the cause of Christ because that cause is supreme in their hearts. They also, as we saw in Nehemiah 2, we can multiply uh, various ways of thinking how they love, but briefly, we saw that they love by serving. So Nehemiah serves, right? He goes before the king. It's risky business, humanly speaking, to show even displeasure before a king. Because the king at a whim could say, what are you doing in my presence with this? I don't have time for that. Throw him in prison or even take his head off. There are historical examples of people so losing their heads literally for showing any sign of displeasure in the presence of a king. But what is it Nehemiah does? He seeks to serve the cause of God's kingdom. But it's not just him. We saw this. He stirs up the people. Verse 17, Then said I, that's Nehemiah, unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. He speaks of what God has done. And notice their reply in verse 20, the God of heaven, we will, He will prosper us, therefore we as servants will rise and build, and so on. 
There's earnestness that Nehemiah is expressing on behalf of the people. They want to work. They want to serve. It's not a glorious work. It's actually quite dangerous as well. The enemies surround. The enemies threaten. The enemies have their plots and ploys. But God prospers it. When people love Zion, this is what happens. They pray. It rises above all else and they labor for it. They don't sit back and say, well, what are you guys going to do? They may need guidance. They may not be officers or elders or ministers and so on. And so they need shepherding and help and you know all these things. But they're saying our hands, our finances, our time is for the sake of Christ. We want to build what is in our day torn down. They likewise, they love Zion not just in outward service, but in holy living. And so you can see this throughout the book of Nehemiah. They stumble, as you're well aware, later in the book. And what happens? They're willing to engage in that difficult issue of divorce and so on, to reform these uh, wicked marriages and so forth. And likewise, the Sabbath was being desecrated. And so Nehemiah closes the gate. What's going on? They're not just saying, we want the buildings. They're saying, we want the builder of the kingdom to dwell with us. That's what we want. And as he's appointed the building of the wall, as he's appointed the building of the temple, so will labor for it. But what we want is the God of Zion. What we want is His presence with us. And brethren, that puts us in mind of what we love. We trust that you love psalm singing. We trust that you love pure worship. We trust and pray that you love the confession of faith, and so on. And these things are good and precious to us. But the reason we love them is not because of them in themselves. It's because they're given us, and they, as confessions of faith, they confess the faith regarding our God. It's because God is precious to us. Why is psalm singing something we would literally die for? Because it's precious to Christ. Why is Presbyterian church government such a consideration that men take an oath that they will never usurp and overthrow the right order of God's government of His church? It's because it's the King's commission. He's established it. And He's the one who holds the highest delight in the heart of the believer. And so they labor for it. But they're laboring for it, not just so that their names will be recorded in some manual long down the road, this person did that and so on, but they're laboring for it because they want to know God. Very quickly then, what are the blessings that come to Zion? Well, it's beyond our text immediately. But you'll notice that there, prior to our text, it speaks of God arising. This is something to remember. It's God who will bless if ever Zion is to be blessed. It's not you or me. It's not us or others. It is exclusively the work of God. And so notice in verse 16, it speaks of when the Lord shall build up Zion, He shall appear in His glory. Any blessing that comes to Zion comes exclusively because of the God of Zion. It comes exclusively by His grace, by His power, by His work. And yet, as we noted, 
He brings that to pass in His sovereign work by stirring up His people to pray, by causing them to yearn for these things, to labor for these things. And it's not just that then He responds to it. He's actually preceding all of that, working through them, and then He brings forth more blessing and builds up His cause. The work is produced by God's gracious work in us. Think of how Paul says it. He says, He works in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. So it's not this idea that we got to work ourselves up and then get God's attention. He's going to do something. True prayer is the evidence of God already doing something. God is quickening His people to pray. That's why the psalmist can say, Thou shalt arise. I can see the time to favor her. The set time has come. How could you know that? Well, it's not just some prophetic gift. Because I see God already working in His people. They're praying. They're saying, this is what we desire. And that kind of prayer comes from God. Well, what is it that follows? God beautifies His cause. He builds up His uh, people. And as it says, that He shall appear in His glory, verse 16. Well, we close then with a few words of counsel and application. First, if we are to benefit from this passage in our time, we don't look to the ruins of buildings and the dust and so on, but we do nonetheless look to the state of Zion. Think of what Christianity looks like. Don't look at its mere numbers and professors. Don't look at how many people say they're this or that. Look for a moment and consider how pure its ordinances are being administered this day. That's how you start to see, is Zion in a state of outward glory in this world, or is it in a state of ruination? And when you see ordinances administered impurely and improperly, though we give thanks to God that there's still something going on, we grieve that there is that corruption that is being abused in the midst of of Zion. It hurts our souls to see God's Word mocked. It hurts our souls to see His praise corrupted. It burdens us. And so if we wish to understand how Christianity is in this current day, we don't just look and say, well, here's how many churches are in this place. This denomination has that many. These many have been baptized and so on. We ask this question, how well, how faithfully are the ordinances being administered according to Christ's command? But then we also can look and say, to what extent is God blessing those ordinances? And we don't mean by that just how many numbers are coming, but how godly are the people under those ordinances? These are the questions that help us gauge the state of Christianity today. Brethren, we need not exaggerate anything, but we can say this, it's a sad time. It's a grievous time today. When, just take our city alone, leave all the other cities alone, look at our city alone, and think of this for a moment. The overwhelming majority of congregations in this place never, think of this for a moment, never sing a psalm. Never. The gross majority don't even know that you should sing psalms. 
we're not laying that at the blame of the feet of those in such churches who have been raised in that. But there is nonetheless a very serious problem that the churches have abandoned what used to be the hallmark of Protestant worship. Simple psalm singing, which was the mark of the early church, which, quite frankly, is the mark of the church in the Old and New Testaments. They sang the psalms. You want biblical worship? There it is. Ask yourself this question. What did they sing in the Bible? They sang the psalms. You can go further. Ask a question about the Lord's Supper. What's going on with the Lord's Supper? Well, think of this for a moment. In the midst of 2020, churches adopted, and I quote, drive-through communion. Think of that formula. It was on billboards in our own city. Communion will be served at this time. Remain in your cars. I don't know what it was, but it wasn't communion. And you have the annual blessings of pets. And you have all of these things going on under the name of Christianity. And far more people than in this room experience that and say, this is Christianity. Now, if we were to multiply that to far more wicked forms, like Roman Catholicism and other such things, we would be quickly overwhelmed with how rancid the degradation is in our day. So brethren, it's not an overstatement to say it's a sad time. It's a reality. You can go into churches throughout our city, sit in in the pew or in the chair, and you can wonder, is this even Christian? Because all they're talking about is, here's how to manage your funds. Here's how to manage conflict. Here's how to build wealth. Here's how to do that. This is what people hear when they gather on the Lord's Day. And they leave saying, that was a helpful sermon. And whatever they heard, they didn't hear the proclamation of the gospel. We don't mean by that that the Scriptures don't address how you're to manage your funds. We don't mean by that that the Scriptures don't address how you're to manage this and that and the other thing. But when that is the stock of what the people feed upon, and there's little emphasis about the need of repentance, the need of holiness, the need of faith, the need of gracious godliness. Well, it's a sad day. So what are we to do? We'll begin by considering the incomparable privilege and blessing of true Christianity. Because you need to put these in contrast one to the other. You need to see how stark the contrast is. That when you start to say, okay, let's look at the Scriptures. What do they teach about the way church should function? What do they teach about the ordinances? What do they teach about the blessings attending them and so on? And you start to get a picture and you say, that's beautiful. And then you look and say, what are we doing? What's going on in the world? This is what we've made of what the Scriptures teach? But we do that not to put ourselves in this defensive and overwhelmed posture, We do that to put us in the lowly, broken posture that characterizes the servants who take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. And we say, oh God, I need my eyes open to see how ruined it is, but I need my heart enlarged to love even the ruins. And then lead me to pray and seek the building up of Zion. 
Not just to pray, but to labor. Not just to pray, but to tell others. Not just to pray, but to enjoy what little we have and to pray, God, take this little and make more. Build up the cause of Zion. So brethren, we close by saying this. Take full stock of the current day. Take full stock of the Scripture's standards. And then fall on your faces and pray that the God of heaven and earth would regard the prayer of the destitute, not despise their prayer, and that the set time would arrive when He would have mercy upon Zion and favor her, and that we would know such as we witness the very servants taking pleasure in her stones and favoring the dust thereof. Would you stand with me for prayer?